Welcome to the Learn Stage Lighting Podcast. This is the show where newcomers and professionals alike come to learn more about stage lighting. And now your host, David Henry. All right, friend, welcome to today's show. So glad to have you here. Always glad to have all of you listening to this show, but especially glad because today it is episode 100. 100, can you believe that? This is nuts. I mean, about two years ago, probably a little less, maybe a little more. Um, I set out and I decided to do a podcast thanks to uh, the encouragement from a good friend, Kevin Ward from MixCoach.com. And uh, he's got a cool site about mixing. You can check it out. We'll, we'll link to it in the show notes. It's uh, mixing for audio, mostly studio stuff, but um, really great stuff. He's a smart guy. And he encouraged me to do a podcast, and, and here we are a couple years later. So, for the episode 100, I want to answer your questions. And actually, you know, this is one of those things, just like the, the behind-the-scenes look. I like to do those here on the show. Uh, this is one of those things where... You know that I've gone back and forth with answering people's questions and, and such on the show, right? Sometimes um, I'm answering all the questions that come in via email. That's what I used to do. That got overwhelming. Uh, there were there were way too many, and, and I didn't have time to get to them. So then we went over to, to do the Patreon, and I've got some patrons over there, um, and I appreciate them. Um, but truth be told, I, I don't know if I'm going to keep doing that forever, just because I, I post in there pretty much often. Um, anytime I, I post in there to have questions for the show, I never really get any. So, uh, obviously, that's not working. And so, and so, what I did uh, just as a, for this one is I just decided to go ahead and try. Okay, sending out an email yesterday, about twenty four hours ago, saying that tomorrow I'm going to answer questions on the show. Write them in. I'll answer. Uh, and this is what a podcaster I listen to, uh, Michael O'Neill of the Solopreneur Hour. That's solohour.com, S-O-L-O-H-O-U-R.com. You can check out his uh, podcast if you run a small one-person business. That's what he's designed. Uh, he, that's what he talks about. But but um, he does this a lot where um, he's got a much bigger much bigger audience than I. And so he'll he'll be like, hey, in an hour, I'm doing a podcast. He sends out, and he sends out an email and then people writing questions and uh, he answers them. He calls it Free Coaching Friday. It's not Friday, but that's okay. We'll uh, answer your questions here. So today's sponsor, guys, is Amazon. That's right. Amazon at amazon.com slash, um, no, not amazon.com, at learnstagelighting.com slash Amazon. Uh, I've talked about this in the past. That if you go through that link, Amazon does send me a little bit of money um, just as a commission for anything that you buy uh, when you when you go through that link, and I really really appreciate it. Um, I've told you before that I've gone back and forth on it because um, a month or two ago, Amazon slashed their commissions. They basically probably publicly acknowledged that um, no matter what they do, people are going to go to them. <laughs> you know, people are going to go to them. Um, to you know, buy stuff, and so why do they need to pay somebody a commission uh, to send them through? So they still do that. It's less than it used to be, but you know what? Since I've started doing it on this podcast, I'll, once again at learnstagelighting.com/amazon, you know, it's it's added up to something. It's it's not a ton, but it helps uh, pay for the hosting of this show. Doesn't really pay for my time, but you know what? Um, whatever. <laughs> no, seriously though, uh, I appreciate everybody that shops through that. I'd love it if you do all your shopping through that. Um, it does help the show. It does help uh, just to be able to produce this kind of stuff for free because this this takes my time. Uh, it takes those other resources, my assistance time, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I just really appreciate if you do that. So thanks so much for doing that. And I really appreciate it. Now, let's answer your, your questions on the, today's show. So First question that came in, Sean Noonan wrote, um, I'm fairly new to stage lighting. 
but I am a pro-working drummer in Cape Town, uh, South Africa, awesome, and re- recently purchased DMXs, which is awesome. I run it via MIDI and Sonar, busy program the lights, da, 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 da. Okay, the one term nobody can really explain to me that make any sense is channel masking in DMXs. Um, what does that mean? Uh, is it uh, Does it have any benefits to me, etc.? So, Sean, um, channel masking is a term that a DMX kind of makes up um, for the, that program. So, it's not something you're going to see in other parts of lighting. But where you may see it in other parts of lighting, or I know you're not a lighting person, but I'm just going to explain this to everybody, is that um, basically um, you're going to see the word tracking uh, to explain basically the same concept, Okay. And so what is tracking or channel masking and how does it work? Well, I'm going to talk about this specific to DMXs. Channel masking allows you um, to basically ignore certain channels when you record a a preset in DMXs. And the reason why you might want to do that is this. Let's take a step back first. Um, So when you record a preset in DMXs, it takes all 512 channels that are in DMXs and it records it in that preset, Okay. And so when you go to record that, you have to make sure that that everything is exactly the way you would want it in that preset. Now, what if you were recording a preset and maybe you had a hazer, um, some blinder lights, something, you had a few lights in those preset, in that preset, that you didn't want that preset to affect. So if those lights were already on, you want them to stay on. If those lights were already off, you want them to stay off. You want the preset you're about to record to not affect those. Okay? Uh, and this is kind of more pro-level, but but it's it, it helps a lot if you're running a show live, especially, to basically record cues or, or presets where not all of the lights are affected by that cue. Because then you can say, maybe you have a blue stage, um, and you go ahead and channel mask um, your blinder lights. And so if your blinder lights are on, they stay on when you go to that blue queue. If they were off, they stay off. They just don't change from where they were, um, allowing you to basically get that one look blue stage. Um, and in DMXs, if you were to record that uh, normally without channel masking, you would have to record one queue blue stage with the blinders off, one queue with the blinders on, and if you wanted different percentage levels, you would have to record those all separately as well. With channel masking, here's what we would do. If you would go ahead and disable um, selected channels, per se, or, or all channels, okay? Uh, let's just say you disable selected channels. And those selected channels are this blinder light that we're talking about, okay? You, you disable them, and you record that that preset that has the, the stage lights in blue on it, Okay. Um, now you just need your stage lights and blue preset, and then you can have a couple presets for your blinder lights, you know, on 50% off. And those two would be able to switch on and off, um, without affecting each other. So you'd be able to be in that blue preset and turn on your blinder lights and maybe switch to a red preset, um, that you also recorded with channel masking on the blinder lights and it doesn't turn off the blinder lights. Um, or if they were off, the red preset doesn't turn them on. So, it's a little bit difficult to understand, but I hope that makes sense. Basically, if you disable the channel, it doesn't get stored in that scene. So whatever it was doing before you went to that that scene, that preset rather, um, whatever you were doing beforehand keeps happening. That preset does not affect those channels that have been disabled. Um, and then um, enable is the default, is just 
that means it records to the scene. So hope that helps, Sean. I know that's a it's it's it can be a confusing concept, you know. And with the way that DMXs is designed to be programmed, it's not always helpful to people, but it might be to you. So hope you enjoyed that. Hope that helps. Jonathan wrote, um, "What are some common recommended workflows for planning out busking queues?" Okay, Jonathan. So, um, and then when to time code, when to busk, or a bit of both. What are the benefits of learning a bit to each console um, that you basically see out there in the world as a professional um, LD? So, these are a lot of questions, Jonathan. It's a lot of depth, and I'm not going to be able to like go crazy deep into all of them. Um, so, what are some common recommended workflow for planning out busking queues? Well, um, I, I, I write a lot about this, uh, and I've got courses within the labs as well that, that teach how to do this. But basically, you know, most people lay out some faders for intensity first, intensity of each group of lights you would want to have uh, intensity of. And again, depending on the console, you might store those as different types of, of faders, whether inhibitive or uh, a regular cue list or a submaster. It, it really depends on the console. Um so we lay out intensities first, then, you know, start to lay out color looks. Um, I like to lay two cues per each button for two color looks. Uh, the first cue uh, is basically one set of lights in color one, one set of lights in color two. The second cue flips that, um, and so I can tap that to the beat. Again, dependent on the console, um, I'll set up the speed between those, etc. cetera. Um, and then after that, I'll go ahead and make cues with things like gobos on them. Then I'll make uh, cues with positions on them. Actually, I do positions before those things. Um, and build a bunch of looks together, et cetera, et cetera. So um, there's a lot of depth there. I mean, I could, I literally, there is a course inside of Lauren Stage Lighting Labs called Puntastical that that is a couple hours and it, it really goes into this. I think it's a couple hours long. Um, and it really goes into exactly how I lay that out and how I would do it in different consoles. But that's the basic gist is just literally, you know, dependent. It's really dependent on the control surface you have. Um, but laying out basically rows, n nicely organized rows of buttons for anything you don't need control over specifically, like fader type control. And then anything that you need fader type control of, neatly laying those out on faders. Uh, when I busk, I don't like to use multiple pages of faders unless I have moving faders on the console. Um, and most of the time, that's that's not the case. Sometimes it is. Um, but you totally can do that just keeping the most important things, the intensities on every page so that you can always get to those. Then um, just another tip on busking that I like to do is with effects. I like to have speed control of my effects on a fader. And I like to keep my um, movement, my pan and tilt, uh, speed on one fader and all my other attributes speed on a different fader. Again, it depends console by console how to set that up. Uh, when to timecode, when to busk, or a bit of both. Uh, timecode can work when you have time to program it ahead of time. Um, and it also can work when you know what the show is going to be and it's definitive what they're going to do. But if the band is not playing off tracks and or um, they're not incredibly um, strict to sticking to what they said they were going to do, then time cones are a really terrible idea. Um, whereas running lights live or busking um, can work with pretty much any show. You know, the, the downside to busking is, you know, you can roll in with a, with a punt page, something you built a template, clone your lights in whatever um, in your file and make a pretty rocking show. Okay. Even if you don't know the music with time code, you can get more complex with the programming. But again, 
the band has to stick to what they said they were going to do. And if they're not going to do that reliably, um, you know, you're going to have a problem. With any time-coded show, you always want to have a busking page anyways, uh, in case the band does do something different. They will at some point. Um, but um, but time-coding can enable you to do much more complex stuff. But again, the big caveat there is um, the band people, we, we've got to have them, you know, locked in exactly to the time code. And if they're not going to be, it's not going to work right. Uh, what are the benefits to learning a bit about each console? So there's two things that I've found that are the benefits to learning about the different consoles out there. Okay. The first is, as you noted, Jonathan, um, that you can walk up to any console and get going pretty quickly and, and have a basic understanding of how to program it. That's kind of the, the obvious one, right? The less obvious advantage is that I find whenever I learn a new console, there's something in that console that's really easy to do that I really like, okay? Um, you know, whether it's with Camsys, uh, you know, you mentioned uh, has their soft palettes. Those are super cool. Uh, MA with effects speed control I really like. Um, it makes it really simple. Um, I'm, I'm striking out here off the top of my head. Um, there's so many things I love about Onyx, the way that it stores everything as a parameter, the, the ease of making sweeping fades and uh, delay time, uh, stuff like that is really simple and really easy. I love that. Uh, of course, the pixel mapping in Onyx, I think, is can't be beat. But anyways, um, and so you find in each console, there are things that it kind of excels in, that, that it's easy to do, that you go, oh, this is really smart. And then... You might be able to make something new with lighting. I find that there's some effect or look that I'm able to make that I've never made in another console before, just simply because it was easy to do in, in console, whatever this new console is I'm learning. And so then that challenges me to go back to the old console, whatever con consoles I've used before, and try to recreate the same thing. And that's always a great opportunity because, A, you'll, you may learn that a console that you didn't think could do something in particular can actually do that thing, and B, it makes you a quicker programmer uh, to be able to see the way different consoles work and then try to apply them to these various consoles. Um, you really often can see, okay, um, sometimes there might be a way to do something that is actually faster than the way you've been doing it for years in a console. Like my first console was Hog, then I learned MA and Onyx, and when I went back to Hogs and programmed, there were some things I definitely changed in my programming to, to speed things up, and I probably wouldn't have found those had I not learned the other consoles. Um, and so, yeah, um, that is my thoughts. Uh, Jonathan, I know that's uh, very brief, but, you know, this I, I, I can go on for hours, and I do that in my courses. I'm inside the labs, and so definitely check those out if you're interested or else, you know, um, th that's my answer, man. Uh, so, what? Was seven icky oh Dale okay his name's Dale is um oh I read this one this is this is funny um and a little carmageddon don't don't be offended hopefully by that given that people are annoyed by an approaching car at night with high beams on why do you recommend that lighting designers aim their moving lights into the eyes of the audience for a wash effect um I don't usually recommend that um if you want to create a silhouette effect oh my goodness okay that's not safe for work um. <laughs> This is a family show. So you're basically saying, um, why do lighting designers in modern concerts point the lights into the audience's eyes so dang much? Um, well, you know, truth be told, it's kind of been the norm. 
and I think it's one of those follow the money trail things. Um, the band likes to see, most bands, a lot of bands, like to see the audience. And pointing the lights out there allows you to see them. Um, now, I'm right with you. I'm all about, okay, the stage lights should be pointed at the stage. They should not be in the audience a ton, okay? And so now you're asking, okay, how do we basically create, um, wash the audience, create an interesting look without it being like totally obnoxious? There's a couple tips that I've got for you. The first is angle, okay? Most of the time, and this is totally a budget thing, is that most of the lights in a, in a rock show in a typical, some sort of, you know, lighting for a band, is behind the band, okay? And when you point those out at the audience, that's getting to be a more shallow angle so that the audience's eyes are staring right into that light source and therefore it looks blinding. Um, you know, so if you had a truss over top of the audience, maybe like your front light truss, you know, in a typical band show, and you now point those lights down at the audience where it's it's an angle that's much more downward and not all that... Um, not a shallow angle, but very steep, that lessens it. Another thing that I totally always recommend doing is if they are spot type fixtures, put a gobo in and rotate it, even if it's just a little bit. Because then that creates being able to see the audience and being able to have light there, but there's dark spots that are constantly moving. So that if light is in somebody's eyes, um, it, it's it's in there and then it's out and it's in and it's out instead of constantly being in their eyes. Um, the second thing, deep colors. You know, I like deep colors. It helps make it less blinding as well. So hopefully that helps you, Dale, uh, with your thoughts. Lyle writes in, oh, I got, I got a number of these guys. Not sure what went on here, but some people um, literally just hit reply and then didn't ask a question, but that's okay. So Scott wrote, um, oh, Scott, looks like you're a uh, labs member. So, Scott, I'm going to answer your question here. But if you're looking for more info, if you need follow-up, hit us up in the forums, man. That's why we're there. Um, so, I have some Chave Rogue R1X fixtures and would like to get them to move into different positions more slowly for a dramatic effect. I'm using D-Pro and haven't figured out if this is even a possibility. Absolutely. Um, right now I'm stuck with full speed position changes and have to do most of them while the fixture lamp is off so they're not too distracting. Uh, I am a worship pastor. Awesome, Scott. Cool, 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 cool. So, um, and so, um, oops, I don't have my D-Pro license centered. That's okay. I can do it off the top of my head here. Hold on just a second. All right, activate my D-Pro because I had uh, reinstalled everything on my computer recently. So, um, so yeah, so there's a few ways to do this depending on how you're programming, Scott. If you're using queue lists, they have uh, fade times in the uh, queue list window that you are able to define between different queues. If you're using individual queues in the show control window, which I, I, my best guess is that's exactly what you're doing, um, then you notice that if you press them on and off, the default is basically that they, they move very fast. Um, but we should be able to slow that down, we can, by uh, just using, we can hit the cog down uh, next to speed 100%, basically at the bottom, hit that, and then press any of your buttons, and there's a fade in and fade out time. All right, set those, and uh, that should fade in and fade out everything really nice and smooth for you. I literally just launched a show here to uh, to just double-check everything here uh, really quick. And it looks like, looks like they're doing what they're supposed to. <laughs> but, you know, 
you got to make sure everything's well behaved. And uh, if for some reason they don't fade smoothly, let me know some more info and uh, and uh, feel free to send me your show file um, and we can discuss it in the lab. Sometimes with the fixtures created for D-Pro, some things I think are, are set to snap or, or not snap and, and they shouldn't. Um, and so that could be the issue too. Um, but basically we should be able to get that, get that going in deep row. Um, no problem. All right. Next question is from, uh, Kirali or Kasaba. Um, Hi, David. This is Kasaba, the organist from Hungary. I would like to use uh, more than one MIDI keyboard for programming lighting effects with D-Pro. Okay, so here is the, the issue you're running into. Um, you can in D-Pro, from what I... Yeah, you definitely can. You can use multiple MIDI devices. However, they can't send the same MIDI notes. If the two devices are basically sending the same MIDI notes, then uh, D-Pro is going to see the same thing, and that's probably what you're running into here. So how do we solve it? Um, what I would do is find out if you can change the notes that your keyboards are sending out. If one of them can change its notes, perhaps, uh, and be in a totally different range from the first one or a different MIDI channel, then that would help hugely. If not, there are programs out there, I mean, it gets a little messy, like Bohm's MIDI Translator. Um, just Google it, and we can post a link to, to Bohm's MIDI Translator. That's B-O-M-E. Uh, apostrophe s bohm's midi translator we'll link to it in the show notes for you but um but um that's one that can look at the two midi devices basically and i think you can shift one of them so that um it's basically you know mapped to a different set of midi notes even though they're the same from both units and uh, that would be how i would do that absolutely next question um, Michael wrote in and said, why are stage lights so ridiculously expensive? Hmm, interesting question. Um, I think, Michael, um, as I think back, it's, it's really interesting. So there's a couple, I have a couple thoughts on this, okay? <laughs> I don't think lights are ridiculously expensive. However, lighting is definitely a bigger part of shows than it used to be, okay? And I think it's all about perspective, too. Like, I have this saying uh, when I'm talking to people and teaching them about uh, purchases a lot of the time. You know, if I'm talking to a church and we're talking about purchases, if somebody came from the place where they've worked with audio before, okay, where basically they, um, they went ahead and they've worked with audio only in the past, okay, um, that basically... Um, means that they think lighting should cost the same as audio. And generally, lighting stuff costs more than audio. However, um, let's take let's look at video as well, because that's kind of what you see in this world, right? We have video, we have audio, and we have lighting, and uh, we work with them all together. And so when it comes to um, when it comes to those three, if you look at video equipment, video equipment, generally, if you're kind of looking at the same kind of stuff, blows away lighting in terms of cost. I mean, it's way more expensive. You know, cameras are um, anywhere from a couple thousand dollars, you know, a good one is, uh, to many thousands of dollars. Um, and video switchers and all that stuff is just is just very expensive uh, compared to what we see in, in the world of audio and the world of lighting. And so I definitely see a spectrum there where, where audio gear tends to be the least expensive and um, also go out of date. Um, the slowest, okay, uh, lighting gear, 
can last a long time and can be kind of within date, you know, usable and, you know, up to date per se, um, a, a, a middle amount of time and a middle amount of cost. And then video gear is uh, definitely more expensive than lighting gear and definitely goes out of date quicker, meaning, you know, video resolutions and and, and stuff uh, keep getting higher and higher. And, you know, the gear that you had, you know, I have, when I talk to people at video and audio production companies, you know, the video gear that they had three years ago that they bought top of the line, whether that's projectors or switchers or cameras, you know, now they're, they're behind. That's like old stuff now. Um, whereas a good light, you know, could be very modern and, and keep you going for in that in a professional production environment for you know five years and even usable for ten. Um, I've seen that. You know, I think about like the Martin Macora. They've been around for quite a while, still in rigs every day. Um, whereas with video gear, you don't see that with much. But with audio gear, you know, you have microphones, you know, processing equipment, even speakers, you know, stage monitors, you know, that stuff. I mean, twenty years if you keep it up, if you keep it in good shape, you know, maybe replace some drivers after a while. That stuff will last a long time. So. Meandering around, um, why are stage lights so ridiculously expensive? I think that's part one. That's just the fact of it. Part two, and we were talking on the labs forums about moving lights, is I think the expectation and the ability to have more dynamic lighting effects in shows has um, it hasn't driven the price of lights up. The price of lights has definitely gone down. But again, if I look at the past 10 years, okay, 10 years ago when I started out, LEDs were not very common, or 12 or 13 years. Uh, you know, LEDs were not that common. And so that meant, for the gigging band, you might have some PAR 38s that you plug in, a couple of them might have gels, and a very basic controller. And that was your show. Um, maybe you had more than that. Maybe if you were, like, the really cool band in town, you had a bunch of PAR cans, um, but, and maybe some DJ lights to add to that. But... Um, at that point, you know, 10, 12, 15 years ago, moving lights were far too expensive to be within the reach of any band. Um, LEDs were far too expensive, and they just didn't know how to use them. And so it was all conventionals, and there was, you know, a lot of power. Um, the power cable was heavy. There were dimmers you had to work with, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so, yeah, you know, cost for the average band was probably less, but the quality of show that they got was, like, way, 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 way less than you have today with LEDs. Now, jumping ahead to the modern day, um, moving lights are within reach of the average band or the average church or whoever. You know, it used to be, I mean, 15 years ago, you know, only the biggest churches, you know, only bands that were like really touring had moving lights. And there were a lot of bands touring who didn't even have moving lights at all, even pretty big ones. Um, and that was mostly a cost thing. Like, moving lights used to cost a lot more, and they were a lot less reliable than they are today. And so now, today, when we see that everybody can buy moving lights, um, and they are very reliable, even at the lower end of the price range, um, it might seem like lighting's more expensive. It just might. Um, but I would argue that it's not. I would argue that to get the same effect that you got 10 years ago, like um, a, a bunch of park hands on a truss, you know, one... You would, you would have LEDs today instead of the conventional PARs, so they're lighter and brighter. But two, that same rig, that same effect would cost less. Uh, same with moving lights. And so with uh, moving lights, basically, uh, you know, like I said, 15 years ago, you couldn't afford them. Today, you can. So I would argue that stage lights aren't ridiculously expensive. Uh, they keep getting cheaper, but 
we can't expect for a few thousand dollars basically to get the same effect that someone else spent much, much more on. So that's my thought there. Um, you know, take it or leave it. <laughs> Stanley wrote in and said, I have four moving heads that I often use to watch wash our projector backdrop. What is the ideal distance between lights and the backdrop? Well, Stanley, there's a lot of what ifs here. Okay. So he, I'm just going to describe what process I go through when I need to light a backdrop. Maybe this is a white cloth or a projector screen or something like that, that you're, you're trying to light with these moving lights. And let's assume that they're a moving spot type fixture. Okay, I don't know what you have. Um, you didn't let me know what, what lights you have, and that's okay. Um, and let's assume that they do or do not have zoom. Okay, so the first thing we want to look at here is, okay, what is the, the angle of these lights? What's the beam angle? And then use a basic calculator. You can just type into Google stage lighting beam calculator. There's a couple that, that work fine. And see, okay. To get the size of light that I want to fill this space, how far away does that light need to be? Okay, then test it or, or look at the spec sheets and see, okay, how bright would this would this white be, this light be rather, at its brightest uh, if I had it that far away? And then that would be like the ideal. If you're trying to put a gobo or, or a pattern on this backdrop um, from a moving light and have it appear nice and flat, okay? Now, chances are you're not going to be able to get that. Because this is real life. These are real shows or church services or whatever. And we we don't have 15 feet, you know, as it often might be, to put these lights away from the backdrop, um, especially if you can't hang a truss in the air, right? Above the, the middle of the stage, basically. That's generally like the best place. Then what do you do? Well, uh, there, there's different ways to wash a backdrop, right? You can kind of have streaks of lights going if the lights are very close to the backdrop, uh, you can even put gobos in those. As, as you start to get further away, you know, the image on the screen starts to look better. It, it just does. Um, but you can kind of have a combination of like a streak of light shooting across that, that screen um, and, you know, a kind of an oblong oval look, you know, depending if you're just a couple ways feet away from that backdrop. Um, really, it's all about balancing like um, the space you have and the ability you have to put lights away and the brightness of your lights with um, the overall feel of the stage, right? Because while you'd love to have that, that 10 feet between or 15 feet between that light and the backdrop, and I'm just using that number arbitrarily, um, while you'd love to have that perfect ideal space, we don't always get that. Um, we don't always get that flat gobo on the backdrop, and we can make great looking shows without that. So hopefully that gives you some thoughts to think of. Stanley and uh, gets you going. Christian writes in, and said, how do you deal with a band in a venue with low ceilings, i.e. I can't get a side or front light more than a, a foot and a half higher than the players? Clearly, side lighting isn't great for a band while it is for dance, and I have terrible uh, crappy angles with lighting for one player blocks by the instruments of others, etc. Would be great to hear your thoughts on how to deal with this situation. So sometimes, you know, they have this this phrase, a couple phrases. There's two that come to mind in our business here. Uh, the first is you can't polish a turd, um, and meaning that, you know, if you got a bad situation, if you got a place where you just don't have a good angle, it might be that you just don't have a good angle. And then the second is, of course, garbage in, garbage out. Um, they talk about that in audio a lot, just as, um, you know, if, if you don't have a good source, it's not going to sound great through the PA. And I think it's the same with lighting. Now, here's one thing you can try. 
is having some sort of uplight on the players, whether it's a small LED unit, uh, even these elation or elation um, eliminator mini pars. They're like twenty five bucks. They're pretty cheap, um, but I think they have a white one actually. Uh, let me double check that eliminator mini par. Just googling it here. Um, they've got a UV and an RGBW. I mean, the RGBW one doesn't look bad. Now, I think those are the only two options. But even that gives you something that's on the individual player. You know, basically putting that that small LED par, um, you know, down at the floor. There's other small LED pars that, that have white, that are just white, um, like a variable white or just a white unit um, or a red, green, blue unit. And putting those uh, below to, to add to what you're doing from the side or from that, that not-so-great angle can help fill in some of those shadows. If, if you just light them from below, of course, um, it's going to look like Halloween with a huge shadow on the back wall. But in combination to kind of fill, that can help. For example, if you watch like any big awards show or basically any big TV broadcast, you'll always see lights on the floor the whole way across the front of the stage basically to fill in those shadows. They don't have to be super bright, but they just help. Um, and so that's my best recommendation is trying to add something like that. I mean, even just some white like video lights, you know, just like if you go to Amazon and I know I've done this before, there's even these little battery powered rechargeable, um, video lights or just cheap ones you can plug in and just these little cheap light panels, you know, you could grab one, a couple of those and put one in front of each band member and, and keep them all on or maybe put them on you know, a dimmer pack or something. Um, it just, just to, just to fill something in. Um, it's not going to be perfect because again, you know, garbage in, garbage out. Um, if, if, if you truly have that bad situation and I've been there, um, there's only so much you can do and uh, you can't, you know, redefine physics. <laughs> um, and so, yeah. Okay. That was our last question, guys. Uh, thank you guys so much for writing in. So glad to have you. And uh, so glad to, to talk to you today, to answer your questions. This was fun. Um, I'll probably do more of these in the future. You know, uh, let me know what you think. But uh, so great to talk to you guys. And uh, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to our show. And uh, as I mentioned here, a lot of the things people asked about, uh, we go into much more depth of those inside of Lauren Stage Lighting Labs. And so, you know, would love to have you in there. Would love to have you uh, help you in there. And of course, for anybody who's a Labs member already, if you had questions here that I answered today and you have more questions, we're here for you. Um, so hop in the Labs, uh, let us know, and uh, have a great week. You know, it's all about life is life is short. Um, and, uh, you know, enjoy your family, enjoy your friends. I know this is a crazy time where there are no shows happening and all that jazz. And, you know, trying to do as much as I can to, to keep you guys busy and, uh, you know, keep thoughts positive. Things seem to be opening back up at this time, which is so good. We'll, we'll hope that continues and, and, and that things go well. And I hope you have a great day. Awesome. We will see you, and I hope that you have a great rest of your day. See ya.